This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The United Methodist Church is strengthening its ban on same-sex marriage and LGBTQ clergy. This comes after a vote last week at its general conference in St. Louis. When Jesus is asked about questions of marriage and sexuality, he gives to us in response to the Sadducees a definition of marriage that says marriage is a union between a man and a woman. The decision left many congregations around the world reeling and asking what happened and what's next. Questions like those came up during a recent meeting at Hope United Methodist Church in Greenwood Village, and CPR News producer Anthony Cotton was there. About 300 people attended, many from the church's Mountain Sky region, which covers a large swath in the West, including Colorado. Valerie Jackson, senior pastor of the University Park United Methodist Church in Denver, was one of the speakers. In our society and in our denomination, I am a triple threat. I'm a woman who is African-American and queer. Triple threat. Jackson also attended the general conference, her first as a member of the church. Why did I go to the general conference other than being peculiarly crazy? (laughs) What did I see? I saw a denomination that does not want to admit that at its core it is homophobic, just as it does not want to admit that at its core it is racist, sexist, classist, ageist, ableist, and xenophobic. The vote at the General Conference pitted backers of the traditional plan, which called for the LBGTQ ban, against the One Church plan, which would have let individual churches decide how they handled issues of same-sex marriages and their clergy sexuality. The main speaker in Greenwood Village was Karen Oliveto, bishop for the United Methodist Church's Mountain Sky region. For more than two years, Oliveto has been enmeshed in a controversy of her own, serving as the first and only openly gay bishop in the church. It's been hard to think about what I want to say today, because as you know me, I don't do anything without speaking the truth followed by good news. (laughs) I love it when those two come together, but it's been hard. It's been hard. Claire McNulty-Drews, the pastor of Hope United Methodist Church, said the discussion was emotional. When Bishop Oliveto came in, it looked like you had tears in your I eyes. did. I do. Why? <laughs> um, I'm heartbroken. I'm heartbroken for our bishop. I'm heartbroken for our denomination. Um, I'm heartbroken for myself and what I believe the church is at its best. And I believe we're best when we have all at the table, and all are welcome. So it's heartbreaking to imagine that a whole group of people had to hear themselves told over and over at General Conference that they had no worth and they 
aren't valued in our denomination. At the end of the meeting, I spoke with Oliveto. Were you surprised by the vote at the conference? I was, and it was pretty devastating. The bishops have been large majority in favor of the One Church plan. The plan that got voted in was ruled unconstitutional not once but twice. Most of it ruled unconstitutional by our judicial council, which is similar to the U.S. Supreme Court. So when it got voted in with a slim margin of 54 votes, in spite of it being ruled largely unconstitutional, um, it's been pushed back to the Judicial Council. So we don't even know if that was a valid vote or what will be valid. But the fact that, you know, out of 822 delegates, this, this passed by that slim a margin, to me shows how deeply divided we are in the United Methodist Church. I think we've grown and don't know how to hold the various cultures. In the past, we've been able to hold the theological differences, but now there are cultural and contextual differences, you know, especially we in the West, uh, Western United States, who um, really value diversity in the many forms it takes. Uh, we bring the diversity to the U.S. Church um, in many ways, and so it was very devastating that what we have found to be true about the beautiful body of Christ that exists when all people are a part of it, that that's not valued by, you know, almost one half the church or more. At least the delegates, I want to say the delegates, that was very painful. And you were up on stage while the vote was being cast. The whole time. What were you thinking? How did that feel as you were witnessing this? You know, the... I was up there with all the bishops, you know, because the bishops, we preside, but it's the delegates who decide. And it was hard because, again, most of the bishops supported the One Church plan. One bishop was walking back and forth, just shaking his head. You know, they're dismantling the church. They're dismantling the church. Other bishops were audibly weeping. It was a very sad day for the church that has raised us in to know God's unconditional love, God's generous grace for all people, to, to hear a group of people resoundly say, LGBTQ people are not a part of this body. Their calls are invalid by virtue of, of their personhood. That broke so many hearts that day, including mine. Because everywhere I've been, you know, from, from this church that nurtured me, and when I was 11 years old, you know, when I heard a call to be an ordained minister and the, the church that raised me said, we see it in you, we're going to help you do that. And at every step of the way, every point of examination, people have said, we see the light of Christ in you. We see the gifts God has entrusted you for ministry. And we see the fruits of the Spirit in you. So the people who have examined me aren't the ones saying, you know, you're not a part of this church. It's people who have never had a conversation with me, never had a conversation, and really had a relationship with LGBTQ people. We heard a clip earlier from someone arguing against the One Church plan. That was Stan Cosby. He's the senior pastor of the United Methodist Church in Amarillo, Texas. Cosby went on to say, So the One Church plan to redefine marriage is troublesome for me. I just have difficulty in presuming upon the authority of our Lord. 
In addition, the Reverend Thomas Wolfe, the president and CEO of Denver's Iliff School of Theology, where 30% of students identify as members of the LGBTQ community, said the One Church Plan does not address the issue of full inclusion. I asked Oliveto her thoughts. Well, again, I think what the One Church Plan was trying to do was make space for everybody to say that we are... We are in different places around the world. We hold different cultural contexts. Um, we hold different theological positions. And space needs to be made for that. And again, in the United Methodist Church, that's always been a value. And as LGBTQ people have really come out of the closet and people see that, you know, we're not outside wanting to come in. We're already in the United Methodist Church. So... You know, the One Church Plan was simply trying to say, we're not of one mind, but we're united in mission together. And it was, it was pretty devastating that, that that didn't hold. But we're also, we're talking about more than sexuality, aren't we? We're talking about race, we're talking about youth. One of the things I value as a Christian is that I never have the complete answer. I know I make mistakes. And I step in it a lot, and I need to confess that over and over again. As a white woman, I walk out the door, and the world invests in me a privilege that I know my, my brothers and sisters and siblings of color don't get. Don't, it, they're not offered. I have to confess my racism over and over again. You know, the church has to confess its racism over and over again. The church has to confess its sexism, its ableism, its, its ageism, its classism, and yes, its heterosexism. And for me, it's when I am in community with people who don't think like me, who don't look like me, that the face of God is revealed more fully. I know especially this is really hard for our young people. I hope that they find um, supportive adults and mentors who can help them walk through this time. And if, if they need, I hope they will look to the Trevor Project hotline if they need support. You're hearing Karen Oliveto, Bishop for the Mountain Sky Region of the United Methodist Church. The Trevor Project, she referred to, is a suicide hotline for LGBTQ youth. I've just tweeted their contact information if you're in crisis at Colorado Matters. We continue now her conversation with CPR News producer Anthony Cotton, who has covered Olivetto since she was named bishop in 2016. We've talked a couple of years now, I think, and this has always been a part of it, this struggle. Mm-hmm. Why is it worth it? Aren't you, I mean, you? there's physical fatigue and there's just an overwhelming mental fatigue. That's a wonderful question. People ask that of us, especially queer people, all the time. Because through this church, in spite of its brokenness and flaws, we've still touched holiness. In spite of the criticism we offer it, we've still stood on holy ground in it. We have been taught to love not, not only God, but people through it. We've come to love ourselves, which in a culture, the larger culture we live in, isn't always easy 
either. So I stay in it, in part because there's no place else to go. You know, people say, well, just go to another church. But, but we, you know, it's, it's not just go to another church. We United Methodists have a way of viewing the world, a way of viewing our relationship with God and people, and our way of extending God's compassion and justice in the world. So that's one reason why I stayed. The other reason is people made a path for me. I look at the young people that either uh, students that I've taught in seminary or our, our youth, and I hope I can, I can make a path for them. There was talk today about perhaps even being forced to leave the church. Are there exit plans? Uh, you know, people, people are still reeling from this. Uh, you know, what the plan that was voted in, that we still don't know if it will guide us, if it'll be constitutional. Uh, the plan says, if you can't abide by this, there's the door. There's the door. Again, narrowing down the scope of who we've been as United Methodists. I think we're still trying to understand what it all means, what God wants of us. I know we in the West, there's myself and four other bishops that oversee areas in the West. We know we can't live into the traditionalist plan. We know we've come too far, and God's not asking us to go back. So we've come this far by faith, and we're going to keep walking into it. Even if it means leaving? We're going to keep on listening to the Holy Spirit wherever it might lead us. We want to give people a place that they are going to be able to grow in their relationship with God and as disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to extend that love in tangible ways throughout our communities. We want all people, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity or race or, or any other human possibility, to know that there's a home for them and they are needed to build beloved community. What's fascinating for me is that at every general conference, especially since 1984 when the church has begun a real slow but steady movement to tightening restrictions on LGBTQ people, you know, with every, after every one, it's like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I'm hearing that from straight people. They are so stunned by the blatant hatred and exclusion that some desire the church. Well, I feel actually really free right now because the people who brought forth the traditionalist plan revealed just how much they want to restrict entry into the body of Christ, how much they are willing to exclude and build a church on exclusion. Now it's there for the world to see. So I feel freer to follow the leading of the Spirit. Once you build a church on exclusion, it's no longer Christ's church. So let's build that beautiful body of Christ that we're called to be. Let's build beloved community where every child of God knows there's a home for them, knows that there's people that are going to make the world better for them, that's going to see their challenges, that's going to walk with them through their suffering, and going to say, we won't stand for you to be any less than whole and complete and equal. That's the church I want to build. Politics versus faith. 
you would think that those would be entirely separate entities. That's not the case here. And I think that's part of it. I think um, many of us, you know, people kept asking me before I went, well, what plan are you for? What do you want? Well, as a bishop, I stood with my bishops at one church plan. But, but when people said, no, well, what's your agenda? You're the first openly lesbian bishop. I said, um, I want the Holy Spirit to break us open. I want to be surprised by where we're going to be led. I want it to be a place none of us can imagine. Because in July of 2016, when the Western jurisdiction gathered to elect a bishop, the Holy Spirit came down and did what no one thought was possible in the United Methodist Church. A lesbian was elected unanimously as a bishop of the church. That was a Holy Spirit moment. We couldn't have imagined that. That's what I was hoping for in St. Louis. That didn't happen. It didn't happen. That was Bishop Karen Oliveto, who leads the Mountain Sky region of the United Methodist Church. She is the first openly gay bishop in church history and spoke with my colleague Anthony Cotton. Oliveto says the traditionalist vote won't go into effect until next January and doesn't immediately change her position in the church. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. President Trump plans to visit storm-ravaged Alabama Friday. Tornadoes there killed 23 people. Finding better ways to predict severe weather is what sent a Colorado researcher to the Andean foothills of Argentina recently. That's considered one of the stormiest places on Earth. Kristen Rasmussen is an atmospheric scientist at Colorado State University, and we spoke via Skype. And Kristen, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Is it living up to its reputation down there as one of the stormiest places on earth? It is. Uh, we have seen really violent uh, rains and winds. Uh, we've, we've noted um, hailstones uh, and also some tornadoes that have happened out east. So it's, it's very intense. How big have those hailstones been? Uh, the largest hailstone we've seen is about a baseball size hailstone. We've seen many other instances of much smaller hail, uh, but we're waiting for the big one. It's so interesting. Most people uh, want to do everything they can to avoid hail. You're, you're running towards it. Help us understand why this is one of the stormiest places on Earth. Does it have anything to do with the mountains there? Absolutely. The Andes Mountains here are very, very tall. Uh, they're about 50% larger than the average altitude of the Rocky Mountains. Oh, wow. And so what this creates is a very extreme environment for these storms to form in. Uh, of course, there are people who live in this region for whom these kinds of storms, I gather, are just part of daily life, huh? That's right. We have actually talked to a lot of the local population. We've had a bunch of outreach events with K-12 through students. And one clear message that has come through, at least for me personally, is that the severe weather here is just a part of their life. We asked these fifth grade students, how large is hail here? And they were holding up orange-sized you know, circles with their hands we were just, wow, this is, this is just what they are used to. They don't realize maybe that these storms are amongst the, the most intense and largest in the world. Hmm. This is just what they experience on a regular basis. How long might an intense storm last? Some of the smaller thunderstorms may last between one to five hours. They, they tend to be smaller in scale and more local. Um, these larger organized complexes are very long-lived. I've seen cases where they last at least... 24 hours, sometimes into, into 48 hours of time as they grow and build in the region. 
Now, what is it that you hope to learn perhaps about Colorado's own weather? Because there are a lot of similar forces. What we hope to learn is what happens in an environment that's a little bit more severe than what we see in the Rockies. And in that case, how can we understand the storms that happen back home and uh, forecast them in a more consistent way when we understand different types of environments around the world? Yeah, forecasting is key here because the more notice you can give to people, I suppose, the the safer we all are. Is that the idea? That's right. Yeah, we, you know, the better forecasts we have of thunderstorms and convection at back home and here in Argentina, uh, the more warning we can put out. Uh, both regions have large hail, strong winds, you know, significant rainfall, tornadoes, uh, all of the same types of severe weather impacts. And the more warning we can give to the population uh, in both places, the better we uh, can basically save life and property. In Argentina, actually, there's uh, the severe warning system is actually very um, early in its stages. Uh, they just installed their ground-based radar network about two years ago. And so we're hoping, we're actually working with the, uh, the local weather service here in Argentina to help improve their understanding of the storms here and then also how we can do severe weather warning going into the future for the local population here in Argentina. A little bit of a Colorado... Argentina exchange program weather-wise, I suppose. Well, I'm glad you're safe, and I'm glad you could join us. Yes, thank you very much. Kristen Rasmussen is an atmospheric scientist at Colorado State University. She recently chased some of the world's most intense storms in Argentina. We spoke via Skype in January. This week, Governor Polis is expected to sign the Colorado Digital Token Act. State lawmakers recently passed it to make cryptocurrency easier to use. Today, we'll get a handle on the key technology behind it, blockchain, in our series Disruptors, about entrepreneurialism and emerging business ideas. could call blockchain the ultimate disruptor, as we heard from David Gold, he's CEO of Denver-based Dapix, which aims to make blockchain easier to use. Gold is also a frequent speaker on the technology. David, welcome to the program. Hi, glad to be here. When you give talks on blockchain to explain what it is, I understand that you start with cryptocurrencies, things like Bitcoin. How do they help us understand blockchain? You know, cryptocurrency, it's interesting that it's called cryptocurrency because the real innovation behind the technology that, that's behind Bitcoin, which most people have now heard about, is actually not the cryptography at all. The cryptography is uh, is something that people use every day on the web with anytime they go to a website that has a little lock or HTTPS in it. Um, that's the same sort of technology. The real innovation behind Bitcoin is the blockchain. And the blockchain is the concept of a distributed ledger. Um, ledgers are just simple records of transactions, uh, pluses and minuses that accountants keep and bookkeepers keep and computers keep inside of companies. And this uh, blockchain changes all that so you don't have to have a central person doing that anymore. It's distributed, but then how do you trust it? Well, again, that's part of the innovation that that is there that's not captured in, in the, the cryptocurrency moniker. Um, 
blockchain technology changes the, changes the paradigm from one where you have to have a trusted third-party intermediary, which we use all the time. Think about banks and uh, real estate agents and all these people who sit in the middle of trusted transactions of value. And middle, instead, middle men and middle women. Exactly. Middle people, yeah. Um, and instead, we have uh, a whole network of computers that have a shared ledger uh, that they all are sharing. And the real innovation is how they're able to come to consensus around the truth and what should be added to that ledger without having any individual trusted third party in the middle of that. Now, uh, nothing could be less sexy, perhaps, than a ledger. And yet this is potentially revolutionary. Could it replace banks? Could it replace real estate agents? Yeah, so it certainly could cause many industries and I think will cause many industries at a minimum to have to change dramatically. Um, banks may never go away, but they may morph into something that's very different uh, in a world of blockchain uh, where currency and value can be transacted between without having a bank in the middle of that transaction. Uh, the types of services that banks need to provide will, will evolve and change. How have you seen blockchain already change dramatically? Something that we're accustomed to. So maybe an example of how it is already transforming our lives. Well, I think it's very early. Um, you know, this uh, the corollary I would draw is to the, the late 80s or early 90s with the internet as the World Wide Web was, was you know, just starting to maybe emerge in the early 90s. Um, people could envision a lot of the things that it could do that we all take for granted today. But back then, um, none of those things were possible. And a lot of people thought that it was crazy that they would ever be possible. Uh, the blockchain is, is, is the technology is in a very similar space today. So the, the really the initial... You know, disruptive innovation that's come about is is the fact that with with Bitcoin or with with many of the blockchain technologies that are out there, there is the ability for a person to send value to another party on the other side of the world without anybody in the middle of that transaction, and for it to take minutes and cost uh, very very little to do so. And does that make the transaction harder to track, easier perhaps for criminals to take advantage of, uh, as much opportunity? Is there is for good? Is there opportunity, if you will, for evil? You know, um, before I answer the question direct directly, I would I would uh, mention that every technology in the history of mankind has been used by criminals, starting with the wheel, because it enabled them to get to and from the crime scene faster. So, you know, this is there's nothing new about a technology being used by criminals, and people forget that the internet and the World Wide Web is and has been since its inception used by criminals to help them do bad things. Blockchain is no different. There are criminals and bad people who use it, um, but the core innovation and the value it can provide goes way, way, way beyond that. And so interesting to your question of um, of privacy and anonymity, um, blockchains are by definition public ledgers, meaning hmm. the, the ledgers that are on these shared computers are accessible to anyone. So the question becomes the information that's kept there and how and what is on it and what it can tell you about people. The Most of the, the uh, people in the uh, law enforcement business and the FBI and so forth, I think they would tell you that they do a pretty good job of tracing bad people who use Bitcoin and other things to do bad things. And just to be clear, Bitcoin and blockchain, they're not interchangeable. Blockchain is a much broader term. Correct. Bitcoin is a specific implementation of of blockchain. And, And Bitcoin was the first real innovation to take blockchain technology and put it into use in a way that that really has taken hold and grown. Here is an excerpt of a TED Talk that describes blockchain in an interesting way. Don Tapscott is a Canadian executive 
who compares it to the Internet that we're all familiar with. So what if there were not only an Internet of information, what if there were an Internet of value? An Internet of value. Elsewhere, a New York Times piece described blockchain as Uber without Uber or Airbnb without Airbnb. What do you see as the potential of blockchain? Yeah, no, I think those are all great uh, descriptions. Uh, That is the true innovation of blockchain, the ability to um, exchange value between any two parties in a very fluid and frictionless way without any trusted third-party intermediaries in the middle of that. And so that goes, without PayPal, without Venmo. Right. And it goes way beyond just currency. The ability um, for two parties to someday engage in a real estate transaction uh, and to exchange uh, you know, the ownership of that real estate without all the, the intermediaries that have to be involved in that today when the final result is really just a change of a name on a ledger. Um, I own it in Instead of you own it. David Gold is CEO of Denver-based Dapix. We talked in January about blockchain technology for our series Disruptors. This week, Governor Polis is expected to sign the Colorado Digital Token Act. It removes hurdles for businesses to use cryptocurrencies. It could take effect as early as August 2nd. And that's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.